like your claps. Appreciate you, Darius. I love you, Nick. I do. I love him. I'm with you, man. Hello, my friends. Can we go down like just a skosh on those lights? They looked really good, but I want to see them. Um, welcome to college group. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's really fun to be here. Mike and I have been talking for a while about how to how to make this work, and there's been multiple times you'd be like, could you preach this day? And I'd be like, no, I can't preach that day. You'd be like, could you preach this day? I'd be like, no, I can't preach that day. And it's usually because I'm preaching on the weekend as well. Um, and as it turns out, we switched our preaching schedule for Sundays, so I'm also preaching on the weekend as well <laughs> this week, so that's no longer an excuse that I get to use, I suppose. Uh, I am so glad to be here. My name's Aaron, uh, if you don't know me. If you do know me... <laughs> I'm Eugene. No, if you do know me, my name is still also Aaron. That's the little Dimitri Martin, for those of you that are in the know. Um, who here likes to read? Like, I mean, like, I don't mean like school books. I know you read a lot of those, but who here, is it still an okay thing to like reading? Okay, raise your hand if you like to read. Okay, I want to hear uh, favorite books, uh, fiction, name them. What'd you say? Lord of the Rings, yeah, okay, excellent choice, safe. Okay, don't, you can't say that one. Okay, what else? Yeah. Space Trilogy, okay, what's your favorite of the three? Oh, okay, okay. Any others? One more. Somebody upstairs. No, 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 don't say that one. Any others that aren't the Wing Feather Saga? Weathering Heights. Heights. Okay, that's very refined and classified of you. Um, Isn't there a character in that named Heathcliff? Right? Yeah, okay. I remember reading that, and if you don't know this, there's a cartoon cat named Heathcliff um, from, like, the 80s. Uh, And I remember that when I read Weathering Heights, I was like, I wonder if that's where they got the cat's name. Maybe it is. I don't know. Um, I was on a plane recently, and I was reading uh, one of my favorite books, a book called Jaber Crow by a guy named Wendell Berry. And um, Jaber Crow is about a barber. You don't like it until the end of it, and then you're like, I want to be him. You know that feeling? Um, and as I was finishing up, this is the second time I've read the book, I was like, you know what I want to do? I'm going to open up a note on my phone, and I'm going to start writing down my favorite books, because that's an important list to have. And so I wrote down Jaber Crow. Um, I wrote down uh, All the Light We Cannot See, which is a recent book about World War II and a French girl and a German boy. Um, and then I wrote down The Wingfeather Saga. And my favorite book in The Wingfeather Saga is this one. It's book four. It's called The Warden and the Wolf King. Okay. Um, I don't often like sell books from the stage, but holy cow, you guys. This is good, okay? Um, What is it that makes a good book? This is not a rhetorical question. I want to hear answers. What makes a good book? Like fiction, again, not a good textbook, yeah. Good plot, okay. Words? Like, no, listen. I know you think he's messing with me, but what he means is that when when an author works 
to use words that are rich and beautiful and in-depth, then you're sucked into a story like nothing else. Isn't that what you meant? Yeah, excellent. Okay, so we got plot, words. I heard somebody say character development, like that kind of stuff, right? All that's good stuff. That's what makes a good book. Um, One of the things I would add to that list is the idea of redemption. Okay, we all want a story where the good guy wins. And I know that that's not like cool anymore. Like we're all rooting for Walter White these days. But we want a story in our heart of hearts where the good wins, where evil doesn't, redemption. And uh, at the end of The Warden and the Wolf King, I'm not going to tell you what happens. We'll talk about spoilers in a bit here. But um, this is written by a guy named Andrew Peterson, who's a songwriter, actually. Um, And uh, he writes a poem uh, at the end of the book. And I wanted to read the poem to you because it's about... Redemption. It's about that longing that we all feel. Um, and so I'm going to read you a poem, okay? And it's, we're going to put it up on the screen so you can read along. The world is whispering, listen, child. The world is telling a tale. When the sea foam froths in the water wild or the fendril flies in the gale. When the sky is mad with the swirling storm and thunder shakes the hall, child, keep watch for the passing form of the one who made it all. Listen, child, to the hollish wind, to the hush of the heather down, to the voice of the brook at the stony bend and the bells of Rysentown. The dark of the heart is a darkness deep, and the sweep of the night is wide. And the pain of the heart when the people weep is an overwhelming tide. And yet, and yet... When the tide runs low, as the tide will always do, and the heavy sky where the bellows blow is bright at last and blue, and the sun ascends in the quiet morn, and the sorrow sinks away when the veil of death and dark is torn asunder by the day, then the light of love is the flame of spring, and the flow of the river strong, and the hope of the heart as the people sing is an everlasting song. The winter is whispering green and gold and the heart is whispering too. It's a story the maker has always told and that story, my child, is true. Words. No joke. Anybody else get goosebumps? Okay. I have that phrase it's a story the maker has always told, and that story, my child, is true. It's on, a, it's on a little piece of word art on my wall in my office upstairs. We long to know that the stories are true, don't we? All those stories that we love, all those tales that we love, that we, we, we get a taste of something, we long to know that it's true. A good story, a real story, a story that moves us to our core is one that reflects the beauty and the wonder of the world that we live in, and it reflects the true story of the kingdom of God cutting through the darkness of the earth, shining brightly into eternity. That story is reflected in the passing of the seasons, like that poem we just read. It's in the beauty and the terror of creation, and it's in our own lives. And whether you know Christ or not, as your Savior tonight, our hearts pulse 
with a longing for redemption. You guys have been studying Romans 8. Uh, You're going to need a Bible tonight. I should have said that at the beginning, but grab one because it's going to be helpful as we study through the end of this chapter. Romans 8, many would say, is the best chapter in the Bible. Um, And I tend to agree. This is an incredible piece of writing that teaches about the beauty and the majesty and the glory of God, our, our desire, our longing for redemption, and the safe place that we all have if we trust in Christ. So I just want to give you a quick reminder of where you've been. Uh, in last week, there's a passage in which Paul writes about how creation is longing. Even creation itself is groaning eagerly waiting for future glory, eagerly waiting where the wrongs will be made right for redemption, for release. And what Paul goes on to write is Romans 8.28, that God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Matt talked about that last week. And Paul goes on to say that those that God foreknew, he predestined. In verse 29, what did he predestine them to? It says, to be conformed to the image of his son in order that, okay, to be, he's predestined us to what? To be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus, his son, Jesus, who died, that Jesus. We're going to be conformed to that image if we've been foreknown and predestined. Why? It says, so that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, ladies, don't let that word throw you, okay? Almost almost always in the New Testament, when you see the word brothers, it means brothers and sisters in the Greek, okay? So that he might be the firstborn among many children of God is another way you could read that. When Paul writes firstborn, he is not talking about Christ's birth. Okay, he's not talking about Christmas. He's talking about Easter. Do you know that? Colossians 1, verses 17 and 18 say this. He's talking about Christ's resurrection. He is before all things. Paul, again, writing of Jesus. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. What Paul means here in Romans 8 is that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, given new life, and it was like being born into immortality. No longer groaning for future glory. Jesus was the first human to experience that. Fully man, fully God. When he rose from the dead, that glory was now built into his humanity. So we're to be conformed to the image of Christ, Paul writes, and you might be tempted to jump straight to the glory. You might be like, yeah, Jesus, firstborn from the dead, he rose, he's full of glory, I want that glory. You forget, we forget that Jesus first had to die. That's the image that Paul is talking about here. I'm going to show you that in a second. That Paul doesn't have resurrection in mind. He has death in mind when he talks about being conformed to the image 
of Christ. We too must die. Let that sink in. To be conformed to the image of Christ means that you must die. That is initially what God calls us to, death to yourself, death to your desires, death to your nature. But, Paul writes, if we're predestined, we're called. If we're called, we're justified. If we're justified, we're glorified. What he's saying is that the work of God, that promise of future glory is as good as done. I had an opportunity one time to talk with Andrew Peterson and a group of people about the creative process, which was like an incredible privilege. And I was like a schoolgirl. Okay, I have a huge man crush on Andrew Peterson. Um, just like really awesome opportunity. A bunch of pastors were in Denver. He was there for like this workshop thing that I got invited to. And we sat down and he's talking about songwriting and he's talking about writing the Wingfeather Saga. Now he was, I think at that time, had not finished book four. I had funded, helped fund his Kickstarter. That's the reason I have a hardcover book four is because I helped fund the Kickstarter for book four. And so he was like working on book four, but he was talking about the process by which he created the world of Air We Are. And that should sound like somebody with a bad British accent is saying, here we are, Air We Are. That's a joke in the book, um, <laughs> intentionally. Um, and he talked about one night, he, just, he, had, he had this idea of wanting to write a fantasy, fantasy novel or a fantasy series, and the first thing he did was in his mind and on a piece of paper, he created the world. And he said, in the middle of this world, there's gonna be a sea. It's going to have dragons in it, sea dragons. And it's going to be real, real dark. And we're going to call it the dark sea of darkness. And the people of this world, of air we are, live all around it in the many coastlands and hillsides. And there's places beyond the maps that have not yet been discovered yet. And the evil in this world is going to exist across the Kilridge Mountains in the east and that's going to be led by a wicked man, thing, beastie, whatever he is, named Nag, the Nameless, which is ironic, because he has a name. There it is. Um, and he created this family, the Igaby family. And he created three kids, modeled after his own three kids, two older boys and a younger sister, Janner, Tink, and Lily, and then he prepared to tell their story. And he stopped, and he thought about how to write a compelling tale about these children, and then he got very, very sad because he said he knew that if he was going to write a compelling story about the Igaby children, he was going to have to hurt them. And that struck me, as I think and hope it strikes you, as incredibly intimidating but also incredibly true. That phrase is rooted so deeply in the story of redemption of the world, so deep in the gospel that in that moment it just blew me away. If I'm going to write a compelling story of these children, I'm going to have to hurt them. 
And what Romans 8 is saying is the same thing. It's saying that as God writes the story of the creation and the story of our lives, he will do so compellingly. You can bet it will be an amazing tale that spins you through twists and turns of joy and turmoil. But this isn't mere words on a page. When Andrew Peterson speaks, words are written. When God speaks, people are written. We are the characters in the story of God. When God speaks, creation is written. God writes stories with us. We are his characters, and it will be told compellingly. He's going to have to hurt us. Now, this longing, this suffering, this hurt, that is the thing that shapes us. That is the thing that conforms us to the image of Christ. Now, when the author of your story says that he's going to hurt you, that's scary. And what I've told you so far tonight is that, like Jesus did, you'll suffer and die. A real Debbie Downer sermon, right? How can we have the confidence to keep going in this story? It seems like a raw deal in my gut. I say, I hope you say, I assume everybody says, I don't want to get hurt. I don't want to suffer. I don't want to die. But I know that that suffering, that hurt is forming me. It's shaping me into the person that I called to be. That death is what God calls me to, but I'm still scared. What can we possibly say to these truths? How can we possibly respond? That's the question that Paul now wants to answer. And this is where it's going to be important that you look at your Bible. Okay, look with me at verse 31. Because what's, what he's going to do, the way he's going to answer this question, how can we possibly respond to this incredible, terrifying calling, is he's going to ask a bunch of rhetorical questions. You know what a rhetorical question is, don't you? Don't answer that. It was rhetorical. Okay. That was, I just thought it was funny. <laughs> what I found is that, that's helpful is that when you're, when you're learning from, when you're reading from the Bible, to answer a rhetorical question aloud is incredibly helpful. It helps us to make sure that we've understood rather than just assuming that we do. So what we're going to do is we're going to do that together tonight. I'm going to walk you through these questions piece by piece, and we're going to work on answering them together, okay? The first question he asks is, what then shall we say to these things? Now, this is the only question that doesn't have an obvious answer. Of course, he would lead it off that way. What then shall we say to these things? That's like his way of saying, listen up. What I'm about to say is what we should say to these things. Please pay attention. If you're feeling scared, if you're feeling conflicted, if you're feeling worried about this call of God on your life, then listen up. Here's what we can say. If God is for us, who can be against us? Somebody answer that question. Nobody, nothing, nada. None, zero, zilch. Nobody can be against us. We stand firm and secure because God is for us. Who can stand against God? Nobody. Because he's, you know, God. 
Like, no problem. That's what Paul is saying. He goes on. He, God, who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Somebody answer that question. He will. How will he not? He will. He will give us all things. We're scared of suffering. We're scared of the call. We're groaning for a new creation. We're longing for justice. Who's the only one that can provide resolution to these tensions? God. Should we have any concern that he won't do it? No. Why not? How do we know? Paul says because he was willing to give over his beloved son, the one who was with him before creation in this perfect, harmonious, joyful unity. The father willingly submitted the author of life to suffering and death for us. How on earth could we wonder if he would possibly not give us all things? Paul goes on. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Somebody answer that question. Nobody shall bring any charge against God's elect. No way. Why not? Paul goes on to answer this question. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised. Now we've arrived at the glory of the resurrection, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. It says that Jesus is interceding for us. What does that word mean? Words. What does that word mean? Somebody tell me. Not quite, but good. We'll get there. But interceding means he's like advocating for us. Come on, man. <laughs> Just kidding. He's like advocating for us. He's, he's petitioning for us. He's wanting to represent us to God. That's what it means to intercede. He's our advocate. Now, you shouldn't be thinking of Jesus as the advocate that's like on his knees begging the Father. Like, no, no, no. Father, please don't smite them in your wrath. Please, please, please. No, 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 that's not the kind of intercession, that's not the kind of advocate that Paul has in mind. The kind of advocate he has in mind is the slick lawyer before a judge. The one who knows that the case is won, the one who has piles of evidence on his or her side, who stands before the judge and says, you would be wrong, judge, to convict. You would be wrong to do that. It would go against the law your law that you are responsible for upholding, it would go against that to convict. He stands before the Father on your behalf if you've trusted in Christ, and he advocates, he intercedes for you in that manner. Why? Because we're justified. Micah used that word earlier in his announcement, justified. You know what that means? To be justified, it means that, that if you've trusted Christ, you've been justified, and that means that you have been given perfection. Imagine that. Imagine a basketball player. I know nothing about sports. It's dumb when I use sports analogies. 
Imagine a basketball player who, first time in the National Basketball Association, stands up to the free throw line to shoot a hoop for his very first free throw in the league. Clang, misses it. Okay? Imagine then that that same player, for the rest of his career, hits every single free throw. Every single one. Is he perfect? There's no getting past that one. Friends, that's the standard that God has for people, for humanity. God is so good, so pure, so holy, no ounce of sin will be in his presence. You must be perfect if you want to be in fellowship in the presence of God. To be justified means two things. It means, number one, your ransom has been paid. Every time I think of the word ransom, I think of Denzel Washington because he's always in movies where some kid gets kidnapped. Ransom, right? The payment to set you free from captivity, your ransom must be paid if you want to be in the presence in the fellowship with God. The death of Jesus pays your ransom. What you deserve is the the death that he died. The other thing that must happen is you must be given perfection. You must be given righteousness. Imagine if right now God came to all of humanity and he said, you're all forgiven. Everything you've ever done is forgiven. You're free and clear from sin. Okay? That'd be pretty awesome. What would happen in five minutes? The entire world would be guilty again. Okay, because the second you think that, that lustful thought, the second you say those angry words, like go read the Sermon on the Mount and look at Jesus' standard by which we live, and you go, I can't do it. I can't do it for more than three seconds, if that. And the Bible goes so far as to say even our good works are filthy rags before God. Even the things that we think we're amazing at, God's like, eh. No thanks. You must be given perfection. And that's what the death of Jesus does. That's what the resurrection of Jesus represents. When you stand before the Father, he doesn't see the sin that you commit. He sees the perfection, the perfect life of Jesus. You're cleansed, not just from what you have done, but everything you will that's what it means to be justified and so Jesus stands before the father father interceding appealing advocating for us not begging but arguing that if God is going to be just he must find us innocent and you know what the father does he welcomes those who trust Jesus joyfully into his family he welcomes them in He says, I love you like I love him. And that's what Paul's going to talk about now. He says, what shall separate us 
from the love of Christ? Somebody answer that question. Nothing. Nobody. Shall tribulation? Nope. Shall distress? Nope. Or persecution? Nope. Or famine? No. Or nakedness? No. Or sword? No. Nope, 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 nope. That was one too many nopes. As it is written, Paul says, this is where it gets crazy, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Even if we, Paul says, the people of God, like sheep, are sent day after day after day to be slaughtered, nothing separates us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And Paul says, verse 37, read this with me. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you remember how we felt scared 10 minutes ago? Are you still scared? Nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, suffering, hardship, trial, setback, even death itself are nothing when we have this kind of love from God. This should blow your mind, friends. One person whose mind was blown by this concept was a guy named Frederick Lehman, and he wrote a hymn called The Love of God. And his third verse from the hymn is one of my favorite verses in almost any hymn. He says this. Close your eyes and just imagine this word picture I'm going to paint for you. Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. He's saying, imagine the, the oceans are filled with ink and every piece of grass is a pen and everybody makes a living writing things. We would drain the ocean of its ink. We could not fill the scroll stretched across the skies because the love of God is so monstrous. So because we have this great love of God in Christ, what should we do? How then should we live? I got three ideas and then we'll be done, okay? The love of God gives us security. The love of God gives us security to do three things. Number one, the love of God gives us the security to lean into the hardship of this life. We are being formed by God through suffering. I've had a hard life. Probably not as hard as some of you, probably not as easy as some of you, but for me, it's been hard. There's a part of me that I feel like has been broken from the suffering in my life. Like, I don't feel things really anymore. I had a friend recently uh, refer to me as a robot with emotions. <laughs> Somebody was like, what do you mean by that? He's a robot with emotions. He goes, well, he feels things, but they're all pre-programmed. I don't feel stuff deeply. 
Because of the hard things I've been through in my life, there's a part of my body that was just cut off. As a result of my own emotional baggage, I come to the table with liabilities. I bet you do too. We all walk with a limp in a spiritual sense. But in hindsight, much of the trial, I can say that God was clearly shaping me into his image, the image of Christ through those hard things. In the end of all things, just like the completion of a well-written story, we will see the way the author was working through it all, and we will delight. It takes an incredible change of understanding to welcome suffering as a means by which we become more like Jesus, but we are safe to do so because we have this incredible love of Christ. Peter writes elsewhere in Scripture that we should consider it joy when we encounter trials. Trials of life on campus, of COVID, of family dynamics that are challenging or just downright broken. If you're in Christ, then you can engage those trials with joy and with expectation. That's what the scriptures say. Next, the love of God in Christ gives us security to live with the end in mind. We know the outcome. We know the end of our story and so we can love others without expectation, without worry, without fear, without expectation of it being returned. Has anybody in this room ever had uh, a book or a movie spoiled? Okay, has anybody in this room ever like, found out the score of a game that you, you know, were like DVRing or TiVoing or whatever-ing before, before you got to watch it, okay? It's the worst. It's the pits, right? You don't want that to happen. Uh, it, it, it's, a good, it's a good thing when you're watching a sport that you like live on the edge. You're like in the ups and downs of your team. It's a good thing when you're reading a book or you're watching a movie that you would live on the edge with the characters going in and out of these emotions that the author is drawing you down. It stinks when that gets spoiled. Now that's true in books and movies and sports. That's not true in life. Man, what an asset it is to know the ending of the story. It allows us to live this steady, joyful, focused life knowing that the end is a good ending. That's a huge asset rather than a liability. Okay? So we can live with the end in mind, and we should do that. And last, the love of God in Christ gives us the security to engage the mission that we're called to without fear. There's no sense in which we should live lives of fear or worry or regret as the people of God. I once heard someone say that these verses in Romans 8 are the kind of verses that get crocheted on pillows and thrown on your grandmother's Davenport in the basement. And what he said was, these are not the kind of verses that should be crocheted on pillows. These are the kind of verses that should be emblazoned on shields as we head to war. That's what Romans 8 is about. Not some doily. What a great word, doily. <laughs> on your shield as you head out to war. And man, you guys... If you don't know it, you're like on the front lines. College campus in America is where the war for good and evil is being fought right now in our country. 
Imagine the response of that campus or those campuses, if there's front range folks in here, sorry. Those campuses. If this group of people, this ministry was known as those who so freely and fully loved others by meeting needs, by showing genuine interest, by championing and celebrating people when they succeed, by promoting the good of others rather than ourselves. Imagine a group of people whose life refrain was less of me, more of him. And just go into that campus, those campuses assured and confident in the love of God through Christ. That's a compelling group of people to a thirsty and dark world. Imagine what God would do through that kind of radical obedience, that that kind of radical trust and faith and love. Imagine if we were the kind of people that were willing to take pay cuts, that were willing to live in less ideal places, to be lonely and separated from friends and family for the good of the world around us, that they might know the love of God in Christ that you know. Imagine. Do you know that there's a group of people in the Bible that's very similar to you? College students? You? College students? Very similar cultural climate. There's a group of people who lived in the midst of sin and darkness and a kingdom opposed, actively opposed to God. Just trying to be light, trying to follow Christ despite the tempting whispers of the world around, trying to make him known and bring good to an otherwise evil culture. Anybody know who I'm talking about? Probably name a bunch of groups of people. I'm thinking about the Ephesians. Ephesus was a city that was full of sin and debauchery. It's filled with immorality, people who mocked and hated the way of Christ. And Paul wrote one of his most amazing letters to them. The first half of the book of Ephesians is all about the truth of who these people are in Christ, very similar to what we've been talking about tonight. And after three chapters of encouraging them through the truth of their identity in Christ, but before he starts to tell them how they should live, Paul prays for them. He wrote that prayer down at the end of chapter 3 in Ephesians. And that's the prayer that I want to pray for you tonight as we close. Now, what I want to ask you to do is like, I know like many of you are leaving tonight and maybe many of you are leaving for a while um, from Fort Collins. You're going to wherever you're going. So I wanted to pray this prayer for you as a kind of a commissioning as you go from this place. And I wanna ask you to do something, but only if you're comfortable with it, because I know we got the COVID and we wanna be, be careful of the Rona. But if you're comfortable, a friend that's next to you, just lay a hand on them. That's an act in the Bible that is considered powerful. You know, make a little like interlocking friend laying on chain kind of thing. Just lay a hand on them. And as I pray for you, I want you to be praying this for them, okay? Let's pray together. I'm, I'm, I'm just reading Paul's prayer, Ephesians 3. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that 
Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.